glow. There we go. Good morning, everybody. Uh, so glad that you're able to be here. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started uh, just so that, that Dr. Knoll has enough time to do his thing. Um, it's, it's a real treat and a real joy to have, uh, have him here. Uh, he has Alabama roots and uh, is, uh, was ordained. Uh, where, where were you ordained? Online? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Ashley, where were you ordained? I was ordained uh, for the Diocese of Western Kansas. That's canon theology. Uh, with permission of the Diocese of New York uh, by uh, the Bishop of South Carolina. Fitz. Right. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like you're, you are from Alabama. Okay. <laughs> Uh, he's, he's a wonderful mind. He's a longtime friend of the Advent. We actually first met at a hotel on Cable Beach in Nassau. Do you remember that? <laughs> Indeed. Over, we, uh, yes, let's just end it there. <laughs> so we were uh, – that is actually the first time uh, I met Ashley Null. He's been a chaplain uh, to a couple of Olympic teams and uh, is a great, as I said, a great mind, and uh, it's a real blessing to have him here. And so without, I, and let me just say this, because he wants to, he is the foremost uh, Cranmer scholar uh, on the planet right now. So if you have any uh, questions about Thomas Cranmer, uh, this is it. Like, this is your last chance, uh, unless you decide to fly to Berlin or Cam. Are you still going back and forth between there and Cambridge or Cambridge or when he's uh, raiding uh, the libraries at Oxford and Cambridge? This is your chance. So let me pray, and then we'll get started. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the witness of those whose shoulders we stand on, especially Thomas Cranmer and others. And we thank you for bringing Ashley to us today. We pray that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit, that his words might be your words, and that we might catch a glimpse of your great love and great work for us uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Just because I don't feel I have enough diversity in my background, um, uh, I have um, agreed to, uh, to the great joy of uh, being installed as a canon in the cathedral in Cairo, All Saints, coming in, um, in November. So from Cowboys to Cramner to Cairo, um, that uh, is Anglican comprehensiveness. I know you've just prayed, but um, if you would indulge me so that I can have my mind clear, let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus today. Amen. Thank you. Uh, I have been asked by the dean to talk about Cramner's famous portrait. I don't know if you're familiar with Renaissance portraiture, but it often contains symbols that help explain uh, what is going on in the life of the sitter, and that's equally true in Cramner's uh, portrait. It has some strange things which people tend to overlook, like a naked lady in it, and today we'll be explaining what is that doing in the portrait of an archbishop. Now, in front of you is a portrait of William Warham, doesn't he look old and tired? 
This is from 1527. He's 70 years old. He's had to deal with Henry VIII from 1509. If that wouldn't make you feel old and tired, I don't know what would. He's famous for coining the phrase, Ira Principis Morris Est, which means the king's wrath means death. And uh, that is a pretty shrewd assessment of what it meant to be a courtier around Henry VIII. But this is a, a famous painting by Hans Holbein. Um, the original is in the Louvre. This is actually a copy that was done in the 17th century at the time of the sale to France. We're using this particular one. It's in the National Portrait Gallery because the colors are more vivid and it's easier to see the points I'm going to be making, but this is actually the copy. If you want to look at the original, you can go online in the Louvre and see the original. Now, look at that portrait. Not only is he tired, but boy, is he surrounded by opulence. Look at that. This is a man who actually was a learned scholar. He was the chancellor of Oxford University um, and uh, since 1506, and he dies in 1532. You can see his learning, the books up there. He's actually the most consistent and generous sponsor of Erasmus, and Erasmus is Greek New Testament, which is fundamental for uh, all biblical scholarship in the 16th century. He's the man who, out of all of his wealth, uh, sponsors and, and supports. Uh, Erasmus calls him his sacred anchor. But although he was learned and a wily politician for his official portrait, he wants to see you as a man, wants you to see him as a man of faith. Notice what he has beside him. He has a, a processional cross. Now, you can't see very well, but you see underneath the feet of Jesus, there's a little round medallion with blue and red. That's the archiepiscopal seal. That tells us that this is the processional cross that would be uh, carried before him <clears throat> wherever he went in a church service. And look at the material that that processional cross is made out of. And notice the 3D effect of the corpus, of the body. That's gold. And what do we have over here? We have a miter. Can you see what the miter has been lined with? Pearls. And you see the gold threads? In it? Actually, Holbein mixes real gold with the paint. So if you see the original, it will actually sparkle. This is a man who, although he's a man at prayer in his chapel, he lives in a palace, doesn't he? Look at the carpet behind him and around him, everything. And yet, even though he's clearly uh, a magnet and a man of worldly prominence and wealth, he has before him two 
classic traditionalists uh, uh, objects of medieval piety. We have the corpus, the body of Christ, and we have a book open. And the book is open to the litany of the saints. Now, why would he want to look at the body of Christ? The medieval Catholic Church basically said that you need to know how sinful you are and to hate yourself for your sinfulness, to shame yourself for your sinfulness. So when Jesus comes, he won't have to shame you. Basically, you're to look at that corpus, that body, and say, look what Jesus did for me, and look how unkindly, unnaturally, I have treated him. And to hate yourself out of love for God. Well, the idea of looking to Jesus to shame yourself, does that sound like good news? And how about Jesus as the Lord of doom, that he's coming back to punish you for your least infraction? I don't know if you all are familiar with the work of Eamon Duffy. Eamon Duffy is a very famous apologist for the wonder of the medieval Catholic Church. He wrote a book called Stripping of the Altars. But even Eamon will say that the medieval moralism and the wrath of Jesus in the literature could be, quote, oppressive at times. If Eamon says it could be oppressive. And that's why you have saints. You can't come directly to Jesus because he's your judge. You need people who are already in his court, like a king. A king has courtiers. Jesus has courtiers. And those courtiers are saints. And what, how to, could, Andrew, I know you're an important person, but do you think that you could get all the way up to, personally to Henry VIII? What do you need to do in order to get a petition to Henry VIII? You need a courtier who stands in, in the court of the king and you whisper in his ear and because of the king's good relationship with the courtier, when the right moment comes, the courtier will whisper in the king's ear and say, please look at this petition. That's the understanding of the saints. They're there because they're already in God's presence. If we talk to them, they'll talk to God on our behalf. So we seen praying to the saints for help to be able to be good enough through self-hatred and good works to merit going to heaven. Now, he is Thomas Cramner's immediate predecessor. This is the famous Cramner portrait. Can you see any similarities? It's consciously designed as a comparison. They're both at their prayer desk. Both have curtains behind them. Both have books. They're wearing the exact same outfits, cap, stole, surplus. But there, the comparison ends. 
What's going on with the curtain in William Warm? It's closed. Nothing's going on. It's just displaying beautifully his whiteness of his robe and the jewels of his mitre. It's all about him, right? What's going on with the curtain in Cranmer's portrait? It's been pulled back. And now we see a window and light can come in, right? Hmm. Maybe Cramner's trying to say something. But do you notice something interesting about the window? There are three broken panes. By the way, we didn't realize this until about 2003 when the painting was cleaned. Uh, it had been overpainted and corrected, and therefore, if you look at older postcards or older pictures of this portrait, you won't see the three broken panes. What do you suppose they're trying to say by having three broken panes? That when you pull back the curtain and let light come into the church, you discover it needs fixing. Now, Cranmer is also a major uh, worldly figure because he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. He has great textiles, doesn't he? Look at that chair with that beautiful inlay. And although one can't see it in this picture, that carpet is rich and thickly woven too. But do you notice something different about the level of luxury? Do you see any gold? Do you see any jewels? Maybe one of the things that has to be fixed is that the worldly wealth has to stop being spent on decoration of the church. Now, we have... Oh, by the way, you, you see that little white strip and the other white strip up there? That just tells you how old they are. They both use the same, uh, that he's 70, and uh, this is done in 1545 when Cramner is 56. Now, let's take a look at this book right here. Where's, where's Worm's Eyes? He's kind of lost in that world weariness, tiredness, retreating. Where's Cramner's eyes? He's looking right at us, right? It's as if we've interrupted his study and he's getting ready to speak to us. And what do you suppose he's going to speak about? The book in his hands. What do you suppose that is? It's not the Bible because the, a Bible that you could hold in your hand doesn't happen till 1560. Have you ever heard of the Geneva Bible? They're the ones who invented the Bible as a handbook. 
They're the first people to put verses in English texts. And that's why it was probably the Bible that Shakespeare uses rather than the official Church of England one. Because those were folio volumes, pulpit Bibles. How big is the... Is the do, you have, do you have an old pulpit Bible here? Huge things. Yeah. So it's only a part of Scripture. Which part of Scripture do you think he'd use? Well, he's a Christian, so it's probably not going to be the Old Testament, right? If we only do one half. So what do we have in the New Testament? We have the Gospels and the Epistles and Acts and Revelation. Which one do you think he has in his hands? He's liturgical, right? So it must be a Gospel book, right? He's the father of our liturgy. And after all, what's the gospel about? Jesus. So you think an archbishop would have the books about Jesus, right? No, it's not the gospel. It says in Latin that it is the epistles of Paul. He's getting ready to preach to us from the epistles of Paul. Why would he be doing that? to tell us that he is a Protestant archbishop. That his great contribution to English theology is making justification by faith the basis of our relationship with God, not our self-shaming and our good works. He's not looking to the body of Christ to meditate on self-shaming. He's getting ready to preach to us since we've interrupted his reading from the epistles of Paul. What does justification by faith say? Anyone brave enough to give us a three-sentence answer? This is Church of the Advent, right? (laughs) That basically... That God's unconditional love has reconciled us by loving us while we are his enemies. And that when we know that we have the free gift of salvation because of Christ's gift, that Christ was made ashamed for us so that we don't have to be put to shame. You know, I, I, I work with elite athletes. And you know what the hardest thing for them to understand is? Yes. That's true. (laughs) Boy, is that true. I have a very simple pastoral principle. If someone goes very far, very fast, I always ask, what are they running from? Most achievement is fueled by a sense of rejection and a need to prove oneself, especially in sports. That's what focuses the attention, a deep need to win approval. 
the hardest thing for them to understand is medals have to be earned. That's right and good. Love can't be earned. If it's earned, it's not love. And that's what Cramner learns from Paul, that we don't have to be good enough to be accepted by God, but it's actually the exact opposite. It is the glory of God to love the unworthy. And that when the unworthy realize they are loved despite their unworthiness, they fall in love with the one who's loved them. We love because we are first loved by him. And that the goal, the, the, the power pack of the Christian life isn't self-shaming, but encountering a love that loves us despite our shame and loves us until we are as lovely as the one who's loving us. And that's the heart of his theology, which he puts in the prayer book. Well, how does he get to Paul? What's on his desk? Unfortunately, we do not know what this book says. That has fallen off the paint. And lots of us have tried desperately to figure it out. And at least none of us have been successful. Uh, this, though, says it is Augustine's book on uh, faith and good works. And we, he learns from Augustine that one can't do good works until one is good. How do you get an apple from an apple tree, right? You can't get good fruit until you have been made good. You can't do something pleasing to God until God unites you to himself. You can't bear fruit until you are grafted in the vine. And the idea that you do good works to earn being grafted in the vine doesn't make sense. Augustine said that, and that points Cramner. If the most prominent church father talks about being justified by faith, not by our works, it points him back to Paul. But, you know, are you still interested about the lady? You see, this is, it's, it was cut off in the big picture. But you see Cramner's shoulder, right? Can you see that lady right there? She's topless. And then a line has been placed strategically. Um, and it's right beside Cramner. Now, where is this positioned? Where is, is the naked lady? In, where the cross is over here, we have a naked lady. Can anyone guess what a naked lady is doing in an archbishop's? Well, some commentators in the past have thought it's just the hallmark of the fact that he is a Renaissance uh, learned man and you go to any Renaissance palace and these caryatids have been carved in the various banisters and woods. And it's just showing that he's sophisticated and learned. He's not just a, um, 
a, a pious man. He is a humanist and appreciates art and culture. And he's just making a statement about the very presentness of the church to contemporary culture. The church isn't withdrawing from the culture. It's going out as a missionary. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? But there's more. Can you compare the two ladies? Can you see that they're the same lady? Exactly the same figure? Even down to the lion head below? It's hard to see in this, but that podium, it's the exact same thing. The artist has taken an image from the border of the Shishi's contemporary avant-garde print of the day, the School of Fontainebleau from France is considered the height of artistic taste. And in this school, they've done a series of engravings. And uh, this is the border of one of the engravings. Can you guess what the subject of the engraving is? Sorry? Nope. Which is actually not bad. Again, the idea of sin and go no more about grace instead of law. Sorry? False idols? No. How about Eve being given to Adam? Notice all the animals are in pairs. It's not good for man to be alone. This is a married archbishop. Now, the Protestants have a very different view, not only of self-shaming in general, but also of the role of marriage in God's creation and that it's good. And Cramner is putting in his portrait the sign that he himself has become a married man and it's poignant and pointed because it's illegal at this time for clergy to be married. In 1539, Henry VIII um, uh, passes a law that says uh, it's illegal and you have severe punishment if you're a clergyman and you're married. And Cramner has to send away his wife. And in 1543, um, there's a fire in Lambeth Palace and there's a box with holes in it that they bring out. And he's very, very concerned about this box making it out of the palace fire. And people said, well, that was Mrs. Cramner, the fox in the box that has been saved. It's actually probably the box that contains the papers that I work on. So I'm very glad that they survived the fire. But some folks then think that means that she had been able to come back. This portrait's from 1545. Maybe she is, maybe she's not. Maybe she's still over in Germany where he had to send her. But he's put her where?
right beside him, isn't it? His companion. Now, obviously, he's saying I'm a Protestant because I believe justification by faith. I'm a Protestant because I am married. But again, there's more. Erasmus was an influential Dutch humanist. We talked about warm sponsorship of him. He wrote a book on Christian marriage. Uh, I've read Cramner's copy of that book. And I've noted what Cramner has underlined in that book. We have the Holy Spirit who breathes into those who take the sacrament of marriage as they should a secret breath of mutual love. Thus they are joined by more than human affection engendered by the body's desires and inspired by the gift of heavenly love are more closely united by their devotion to God than by their physical union with one another. Did you hear what Erasmus was saying? That marriage is designed to be a factory of love that God will use to inspire love for him and others. My two favorite illustrations for marriage, one is it's God's sandpaper to rub off your selfishness. Have you ever noticed that? Nothing as as clear a mirror of how instinctively and thoughtlessly and not maliciously we are self-centered as human beings. But secondly, it's not just sandpaper. It's a buffing cloth to bring out the finest grain. When someone knows your weaknesses, when someone has paid the bitter price of being hurt by your weaknesses, and they don't shame you, but love you, that gives you a sense of worth that will never go away, right? Far from devaluing marriage as the medieval church did, Cramner wants to highlight marriage as the factory by which we begin to experience on a daily basis what it means to be loved despite our failings, so that we can begin to truly love. I do not think it's a coincidence that the mark in Cramner's own personal conversion from medieval traditional theology to Protestant theology happens at the same time that he gets married in Germany.
it's a lot easier to believe that God wants to love you and not shame you when you have a person doing that in your most intimate and vulnerable areas of your life. Not surprisingly then, when Cramner comes to write the marriage service, he gives three reasons. Procreation of children to be brought up in a stable, loving, and uh, God-fearing atmosphere. A remedy against fornication. Those are pretty standard medieval. But how about this line? Mutual society help and comfort that one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and in versity. Marriage is to birth and sustain and nurture mutual love. And you may not know this, but to love and to cherish was Cramner's addition to medieval English marriage vows. For Cramner, marriage as a nursery for Christian affections becomes embedded in English culture. Well, we have one final thing we haven't talked about. That's not very helpful, is it? Okay, do you see this really weird mask X uh, that can look sort of like, like an H and a half O? It's hard to see, but up in the upper left-hand corner, the very top above the naked lady, that's also... Uh, comes from the border of that same series of high-class contemporary 16th century art. And it's a picture of the story of the death of Acteon. Do we have any classicists here who knows about the death of Acteon? I thought I knew things, but I had no idea who he was. You see this guy right here? He He has the body of a man and the head of a deer. Acteon is a hunter who's gone out with his hounds looking for a stag. And he makes the unfortunate discovery of Diana, the goddess of the hunt, bathing. And he looks at her and she is not amused. That's why she's turned his head into the head of a stag. And if you look behind him, you'll see him running away. And now not just his head, but his arms are becoming of the four legs of a stag. And again, it's hard to see in the porch in, in the engraving, but the back, there are his hounds. And why is he running? His hounds are after him, and his hounds will tear him. To pieces. Now, 
that's not a very uplifting engraving, right? It's not like the marriage of, of Adam and Eve, right? What's that doing in an archbishop's portrait? Well, above it, it says in Latin, know your Lord. Who is the head of the church under a Protestant Archbishop Cramner? The Pope? Henry VIII. Isn't that what Henry VIII is really like? And I can't prove it. Maybe it's just my own inventiveness as opposed to historical fact. But I do think it's interesting that the, the head they use to symbolize looks like an H with two half O's. Henry VIII in Latin is Henricus Octavus. H-O. I didn't put that in, in writing because it's probably too fanciful. But the point is that for Cramner, the church is not something separated from society but it's enmeshed in society. For Cramner, the, the eternal message of revealed in the scripture of justification by faith and that God's gracious love inspires grateful human love, that doesn't change. But mission determines structure of the church. And therefore, the most efficient means is to figure out how to structure the church that makes sense in your own contemporary society. And in his day, having the king responsible for making repairs and reforming the church makes the most sense. And therefore, he he's doesn't support Henry as the head of the church as convenience, but as the best mission strategy for the day. But how, you want to ask, can the king be a vehicle for the Holy Spirit? Because doesn't the Holy Spirit pass down from bishop to bishop to bishop to bishop? And therefore, if, the, if a layman is in charge, how is it possible for, for the people to get to the Holy Spirit? Have you heard of that understanding of apostolic succession? Maybe not at the Advent. Do y'all have the Holy Spirit? How did you get it? <laughs> Tackled you and gave you a big bear hug. And how did it track you down? Faith comes from hearing the Word of God. Now, if I had bad breath, uh, Andrew would be too polite to point this out to me. But how would he know that? Proximity and when I open my mouth to talk, what happens? My breath goes with my words, right? That's how he'd know that bad breath. I'd be speaking to him. And with my words goes my breath. And for Cramner, with God's word goes God's breath. And that therefore getting Henry VIII to require for the first time in over a hundred years 
a Bible in English in every parish church which anyone could come and read. And then when he, when Edward VIII, sixth is king, and they do the new liturgy, what do we do in morning and evening prayer? We read scripture. He consciously puts the whole land under scripture so that the Holy Spirit can work through God's word to change our heart and we can hear the message that God's unconditional love for us does not shame us but delivers us from shame and makes us as lovely as the one who is loving us. For Cramner, this whole portrait says, It is the glory of God to love the unworthy. And he works through society and he works through marriage. And he works through a reformed church to proclaim that message that although his opponents thought him epitomized by words in weakness, he believes the power of love to make things new. And I think that's a godly heritage for Anglicans today. Thank you for your time. I guess Cranmer wasn't surprised when Henry came like a dog to tear him to pieces. Uh, well, actually, the thing is, Henry Cranmer is almost put to death, but he, even Henry VIII, had the good sense to recognize that the only person who really genuinely loved someone as unworthy to be loved as Henry VIII was Cranmer, and that he would, in the end, let no one touch him while he lived. And Henry dies holding Cramner's hand. Thank goodness that's not mine. I was giving a lecture at the American Bible Society in New York, and the cell phone goes off, and we're all looking, and then it suddenly dawns on everybody, including me. It's my cell phone. (laughs) I I coached track cross-country for 33 years, so I'd be interested in maybe some story that you have from from being with the Olympians. Okay. Uh, Let me give you some statistics about the London Games. One host city, three Olympic villages, the main Olympic village, and then two uh, smaller satellites, one for equestrian, one for sailing. Uh, 26 Olympic sports. Uh, 39 different gold medal events, a 100-yard-long dining hall. A dining hall as big, literally, as a football field. Think about that. The dining hall sits seats 5,000 people at a time. You may have noticed that McDonald's is a sponsor. So there is actually a McDonald's and a McCafe in the athlete's dining hall. And what you notice very quickly is nobody goes in at the first. 
And then when their competition is done, their ritual is to go and get two Big Macs they haven't been able to eat in the last four years. And out of those, there are only 39 gold winners. <laughs> 5,000, oh, we're not done. 5,000 uh, people seated, 10,000 athletes, uh, 15,000 people living in the Olympic Village, of course, 20,000 journalists, twice as many journalists as you actually have competitors. The Olympic Stadium seats 80,000 people and 150,000 condoms were distributed in the Olympic Village. Now, what's going on? You can hear commentators talking about, well, what do you expect? You have the most handsome, most beautiful, most physically fit, very active, sporty people together, and it's a one huge... That's not what's going on. I don't actually like going to the Olympics. If you um, actually know people and you care about them, going to the Olympic Games is like experiencing 10 funerals in one wedding every day. It's wonderful for the folks who had their dreams come true. Most people come and see their dreams buried. There is so much pressure. I've seen someone just as absolutely broken and shattered because they didn't make the semifinal heat as someone missing the gold medal by one one-hundredths of a second because you're obsessive compulsive about your performance. That's how you get there. And whatever is your goal for those games, because of the pressure, at least for your first games, very few people do personal bests. No one talks. Everyone knows there's physical pain involved in sport. Rarely do people talk about the emotional pain involved in sport. Troy Aikman says the highs are highs, but the lows are lows. And what do you do with the pain? What does our culture do with pain? We numb it. Those 150,000 condoms are self-medication managing pain. And by the way, what is the most depressing day for most Olympic gold medalists? the day after they win, when they discover that their savior was actually an idol. Remember, most athletes pursue success. Most any overachiever pursues success looking for approval. What's the first thing any Olympic gold medalist does when they know they've won the gold medal? Any guesses? The first thing they do, when you watch it on TV, they will look to the stands. They will look to make eye contact with someone they love because even they know that at that moment, if there is no one to share the joy with, it is empty. And when they discover that there is nothing as cold as a gold medal against your chest, it doesn't make you feel loved on the inside. And all their insecurities and all their problems 
have not gone away. They are literally anchorless because they don't know now how to make sense of their life. And worse, everyone thinks they have it made and they can't talk because if they tell people they have, they have, they, their whole orientation is gone, then they're just whining, right? The truth is it takes as much self-medication for pain when you win as when you lose. Is that enough stories?